Episode 355, Ski Mountaineering Mira Peak in Nepal with Jim Lamancusa. And that ski down was, I think, one of the most amazing experiences of my life because the sun was setting. So it had like this orange glow everywhere. All the mountains had that like orangish red glow that you can see in the evening time. And I'm like looking around and I'm seeing Cho Oyu and Shishapangma and Mount Everest and Lhotse and Nupse and just like, and like skiing and like, I can't believe where I am. Like pinch me. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. This episode is brought to you in part by Bissell Bark Bath, the easier way to bathe your dog indoors. For more information, go to Bissell slash Adventure Sports and be sure to use the coupon code Adventure Sports when you get a bark bath for your dog. Hey, today's show is about ice climbing. Today's show is about adventure travel in Nepal. Today's show is about winter mountaineering and ski mountaineering. And today's show is about Jim Lamancusa, who was on our show back in episode 295. So it's been a while back. But when Jim was on, before you may recall, he was talking about skiing Mount Rainier and told an amazing story of his trip on Rainier. But uh, he also mentioned that he had just a, a huge life-changing trip on Mira Peak in Nepal. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to get him back on and to get that story too? So Jim, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks, Kurt. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I think last time when we visited, it was tons of fun. So it's going to be fun today. I love uh, sharing and swapping stories with you because we have so many similar interests. But uh, let's start out with a little bit of the backstory again. Who's Jim Lemoncusa? Well, um, I guess, you know, I'm a 38-year-old entrepreneur and business owner here in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I own a uh, tea company called Kusa Tea, which is the world's first organic instant tea. And similar to if those listeners that know like Starbucks via instant coffee, it's same thing, but just for the tea category. So I started that about, um, we launched products eight months ago. So it's been pretty new, but it's going really, really well. And uh, as far as personally, you know, I spend every minute of my downtime that I can outdoors. And I live in the amazing outdoor capital, Boulder, Colorado. And um, we have, I, I think it's probably some of the best rock climbing outside of our door of anywhere in the country. So I do a lot of um, 14er climbing, winter snow ascents, ski mountaineering, uh, ice climbing, and then summertime, a lot of backpacking and camping and rock climbing. Mm. A lot of people are just sitting there going, man, that sounds like an ideal life. So he has uh, he has his own company selling tea in the outdoors industry. He lives in Boulder and, and gets to do all this climbing and has a winter mountaineering, all that kind of stuff. You know, you had to be pretty purposeful, I would say, to build the life yeah. that you have. Um, was that a conscious effort? I would say it's 50% conscious effort and 50% karma, <laughs> just where I ended up. I mean, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, 
And I left Ohio for, to come to school in Boulder, Colorado, because I, I wanted to go somewhere where I could rock climb, but also I knew I wanted to study business. And University of Colorado has still, I think, one of the top 20 business schools in the country for public education. Um, so made my parents happy, made me happy, came out here and just fell in love with the mountains. And then I didn't know at the time, but you know, Boulder has some of the, the best outdoor and natural product companies in the country. And there's amazing networks of companies here. So once you're in these companies, it, it was relatively easy for me to prove myself. And I've now worked for five different local Boulder brands, whether it's outdoor industry or natural products. And as long as you do good work, you know, the next job is always around the corner and fortunate to work for some great brands. And then my, I'd say, you know, it's not all roses because my previous job laid me off in November of 2015. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty big shock when that happens. They weren't doing that well and got laid off and did a lot of soul searching. And I've always wanted to start my own company. And it was on a backpacking trip that next spring that I had the idea for, you know, I saw my friends drinking instant coffee and I was carrying around a wet, soggy tea bag. And so I saw a hole in the market and then moved forward with the company and took the leap. And uh, so I guess some of it's purposeful and some of it's just amazing networks and opportunities here in Boulder. Yeah, you know, it, it happens over and over again that we're talking to somebody about uh, the, the company that they've put together. And it, it goes back to, oh, I was out in the woods, and I was backpacking, and I was climbing, and and yep. I think it's really cool because when we pursue the things that we love, often it opens doors we never would have dreamed of had we not gone out and tried it and yep. done it, you know? I mean, here's an example. We just interviewed Scott Newman uh, uh, several days back, and he went out in the wintertime to do some uh, snowshoeing, climbing, backpacking-type overnight camping trips, and he couldn't see because his goggles kept fogging up. So he made Spin Can See, which is a, a goggle defogger. And now he has a company selling this defog stuff. And it's all because awesome. he went out and did something, right? Yep. So anyway, a matter of fact, 180 Tack, our company, with our lightweight natural fuel backpacking stoves, that grew out of my love for backpacking. Went backpacking and wanted a better solution for cooking in the woods. And so that's where our stoves came from. So, I mean, it just happens when you're out doing what you love. And I think it's really cool that that happened with you. And Kusa Tea, we're going to come back later in the show and tell people what this is. But Kusa Tea has really taken off. So congratulations. It's awesome. I'm seeing it all over the place now. Yep. Thank you. It's been a fun journey. Just getting going, really. Yep. So real briefly, let's touch on El Dorado Canyon for people that may not know. I mean, that used to be a big place for you. Did a lot of trad climbing there. What is El Dorado Canyon? Oh man. So uh, I don't have the specifics on it, but I would say that, you know, so El Dorado Canyon, it's 10, 10 miles South of Boulder. So you can literally, literally ride your bike there if you want to. Um, but it has, it's some of the best trad climbing in the country and it's, uh, kind of a hard conglomerate sandstone. Um, there are a couple really large features. There's, um, the, there's red garden wall. Um, there's a West Ridge, there's the Bastille. So these huge towering and you can, it's uh, most of it is multi-pitch. So you're talking about anywhere from three to six pitches of, of trad climbing. Um, there's a bit of sport climbing there, but the rock quality is just incredible. It's great for protecting. Um, 
early on in my college career, I, I took some courses through Colorado Mountain School and really learned how to trad climb well and appropriately and safely. And then took I've taken a bunch of rescue courses as well. So if something goes wrong, you know what to do. But um, even for day hikers, it's one of the most spectacular places, but you'd never see it. If you're just driving around in Boulder and you drive from Golden to Boulder, you don't even know it's there. And all of a sudden you drive into the canyon and it just opens up and it's just spectacular. Mm. Yeah, I used to live at the top of the canyon um, on the other end, and we could see just a little bit of the one of the big walls from our deck. Oh my gosh! Looking out, why'd you ever leave? (laughs) Well, you know what? We lived there for twenty years, and it was time to try something different. And so we have moved to Gunnison, Colorado, and are just loving it here. This is like an adventure sports capital of the planet as well. So. Having a ton of fun. But anyway, you know, I wanted to unpack this Mira Peak trip a little bit and kind of break it down to just the one trip so that people could get a feel for what's involved in getting a trip like this together and doing it, but also in the experiences that you can have when you do this sort of adventure travel, mountaineering stuff. So this was a few years back, about five years ago, that you went to Nepal and did the Mira Peak trip. Uh, but you said that it was just amazing, one of the most amazing days of your life. And let's start with that amazing day story, and then I'd like to go back and talk about a little bit more of the logistics. Sure. Um, you know, so I'm going to answer that question and say, like, the most amazing 24 hours of my life, because the, that most amazing 24 hours kind of started the, the night before we summited. So uh, Mira Peak, it's 21,247 feet. So it's it's pretty high. It's definitely the highest mountain I had ever climbed. And the goal was to ski it. Um, you don't actually get to the snow until uh, about 15,500 feet was snow line, which is kind of crazy for us in Colorado um, and the rest of the country to think about snow line being that high. But that's just the way it is in, in the Himalayas during the time of year that we were there. So we were there in September and... Uh, so from 15,500 feet, basically climb up to around 17,000 feet to make advanced base camp. And so we, we hiked in, this was the night before, we hiked up to advanced base camp, made camp, and then all of us were pretty tired. You know, once you're above 14,000, 15,000 feet, everything just gets a lot slower, moving slower and energy levels slower. So everybody just kind of crashed for a half hour, 45 minutes, took a little power nap. And then our goal was to wake up and and just do a little bit of an acclimatization hike, not summit, but try to get up to 18.5 was the goal. And so about half the group, they were too tired. They couldn't do it. They just wanted to rest. But there was about half of us. So the group size, there were 14 of us. So about seven of us got up. um, And this is in the evening time, like five or six in the evening. And it was some of the best weather we had for the entire trip because overall the the trip was pretty miserable weather-wise, just rain, constant rain. But it it was clear skies. We hiked up, like I said, it was about five in the evening. We hiked up to 18,500 feet and it was clear. Again, for one of the first times we were able to see all around us. And one of the the cool things about Mira Peak is that from the top of Mira Peak, you can see five of the 8,000 meter peaks mm. and there's 14 of them. So, but you can see five of them from, and one of them being Everest. So from 18,500 feet, we were just looking around us and th- there had been a storm the day before. So there was a lot of snow on the mountains. Um, and that ski down was, I think one of the most amazing experiences of my life because the sun was setting 
So it had like this orange glow everywhere. All the mountains had that like orangish red glow that you can see in the evening time. And I'm like looking around and I'm seeing Cho Oyu and Shishapangma and Mount Everest and Lhotse and Nupse and just like, and like skiing and like, I can't believe where I am, like pinch me. Um, and so we skied back down to advanced base camp and had dinner and then went to bed because we knew we were going to get up early. And then we woke up early the next morning and it was socked in again. It was like two mm. 30 in the morning and we were in back in the clouds. It was like this r- weird mixture of snow sleet, um, super cold, windy. And, you know, it wasn't really summit conditions, but as usual, you know, it, it's always worth giving it a try and seeing how far you can safely get. And so we started the hike at two 30 in the morning and at around, and it was miserable, like whiteout snow conditions. Um, we knew the route pretty well, so that wasn't much of a worry. But at around 5.30 in the morning, the sun was rising, and the sun started to burn off the cloud layer and burn off that, that part of the storm. And so from about 5.30 until we summited at 9 a.m., um, we had good weather. Uh, I wouldn't say it was bluebird sky, but it kind of intermittent clouds, um, but it wasn't snowing or raining. And on the actual summit itself, we had like a little donut of, of open sky. So it was beautiful. We hung out there for a couple minutes and then literally we saw this thing coming in. It was just nasty storm came straight at the mountain again. And the entire ski descent was, you know, like take three turns and then check if you can still see your buddy, take three more turns. Luckily we had wanded the route. So we had bamboo sticks with uh, like orange flags on them to make sure that we knew how to safely ski back down again. And so it was definitely adventure skiing on the way down, dangerous adventure skiing all the way back down to advanced base camp because it was just white out, couldn't see anything. But it was an amazing feeling knowing you had just summited 21,000 foot mountain. So it was like that, those 24 hours, you know, we experienced all sorts of emotions. um, And yeah, one of the best days of my life. Wow. It sounds remarkable. Just amazing to me. It's, it's not just that you're in Nepal. It's not just that you got a weather window where you got to see those amazing views. It's not just that you summited a 21,000-foot mountain. It's not just that you got to ski back down again. It's like all of this together makes for an amazing, amazing adventure to me. You know, yeah. if, I mean, if I'd gone to Nepal, that'd be enough. Yep. If I'd skied a big mountain, that'd be enough. But you got to do all of it together. So no wonder, man, what an amazing experience. What was it like to be up at 21,000 feet and then try to ski down? Was, was the altitude pretty rough? Yeah. Um, you know, we took a lot of time getting up to that altitude. So it it took us from, from the time that we landed the plane, it took us 18 days for the whole trip. And it was basically 15 days up and three days out. (laughs) So it was a very gentle acclimatization process. So overall felt pretty strong, but there's no question that I would say above, above 18,000 feet, it was slow going just like one step, two breaths, one step, two breaths. And then on the way down, you you know, your legs are burning. It was, even if, even if it had been great weather, I don't think we would have been taking more than five or 10 turns at a time before you're stopping to catch your breath and make sure that you can keep skiing safely because there are crevasses all over that mountain and you want to make sure that if you see one coming up, you're able to, to stop before it or worst case scenario, you can jump over it. Mm. Sounds exhausting. You know, you mentioned that same crevasse jumping uh, technique when you talked about Rainier. 
but then you had good visibility. So man, what's it like when you're in these whiteout conditions? That's just scary. It is scary, but that was, again, the reason we carried up, I don't know how many, probably 75 of those bamboo sticks with flags on it because that is one of the safety things, best safety things you can do to make sure you get down off the mountain safe is you got to know your route. And if we hadn't put those, there's no way we would have remembered the exact same route that we went going up. And when you're going up, it's pretty easy to spot the crevasses. When you're going down skiing, you're going a lot faster. Yeah, Harder not only that, but you're kind of looking over the lip of them, so they probably disappear. Yeah, they do. It's true. Yeah, wild. So let's go back and, and tell the expanded story a little bit now. How did you decide to go to Nepal to try to climb Mira Peak in the first place? Well, there's, I guess, two things coming together. So one is I lived in Nepal for a year. Uh, after I graduated college, my wife and I went to Thailand and taught English um, to in a Thai school for about a year and loved the experience. And my wife studied abroad in Nepal when she was in college. And so she wanted to go back to Nepal and show Nepal to me. So I was game. And so we went there and Nepal at that time, and it hasn't gotten much worse, but at that time it was so inexpensive to live there. And so we ended up staying for a year and we were living for the two of us. It, we were spending about $5 a day for food, housing, transportation, everything. Wow. Averaging five bucks a day. So we were able to stay for a long time. And it's like one of those things I always recommend to younger people, like before you throw yourself into a career and a mortgage and start popping out kids, it's like, do take some time to travel the world because I guarantee, even though I love traveling now, it's tough to get more than three or four weeks off in a row. Right. Um, and it, it's hard to really know a place in three or four weeks. And most people, it's like one or two weeks and that's it. So um, take time when you're young to go adventure a little bit. And going to Asia is a pretty sweet spot because it, it is relatively inexpensive once you get there. Plane flights are expensive, but then it's cheap. So um, so we lived there for a year. I've, I fell in love with Nepal. I did a bunch of mountaineering and hiking and climbing when I was there with my wife. So I wanted to go back. And then the stars aligned when... Um, my, one of my previous jobs, I was the vice president of sales and marketing for Dinafit, which is a ski mountaineering brand and they're headquartered in Munich, but the president and a lot of their marketing team, they like to go to Nepal to ski mountaineer once every two years. So they invited me on this trip. And so I was there with a bunch of, I guess, coworkers from Dinafit, um, in a place that I had been many times before. So I was an asset to them and they were an asset to me because I'm getting invited on a company trip, which was sweet. <laughs> so that's why. That's why I went to Nepal. Oh, that's and, so good. Yeah. Looking for a mountain. Mira Peak is an amazing one. It, it's one of the easier ski mountaineering peaks that you can do in Nepal. Um, I, for, you know, it's, it's, more, it's easier to access. Um, there aren't as many open glaci or glaciated um, crevasse fields on the peak. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just an amazing area. So it's in the solo Kumbu region, which is the same region that Everest is in. So as far as beauty goes, it's, it's top notch. Nice. Well, you know, you had to at some point decide that you wanted to try ski mountaineering just before you'd ever done it before. What got you into the sport in the first place? <laughs> it was Dina fit. So I used to be a snowboarder and, um, but I've been a rock climber for a very long time. So when Dinafit was looking for a VP of sales and marketing, they knew that they were also, they were about to acquire a brand called Wild Country, which is a rock climbing brand. They, Wild Country actually invented the friend, the cam device that right. most rock climbers use to protect themselves. So 
uh, they knew that they were about to buy this company and they wanted somebody that had experience in rock climbing. So when, when the president of DNFIT was interviewing me, he said, you know, you got to become a skier now, right? And I was actually kind of getting tired of snowboarding. It's fun, but um, in particular, it, it's not a very efficient mode of transportation for in, being in the mountains. If you're in the ski resort, it's great, but um, it, split boarding is a much more uh, difficult endeavor than skis are. It's possible, but anyway, so uh, once I got hired by Dinafit, I basically learned how to ski. <laughs> so within a couple of years, I went from being a beginner skier to skiing some of the biggest mountains in the world. Mm. <laughs> that had to be fun. Wow. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. talked about it on the show before, but for new listeners, because we have a lot of new listeners, Jim, uh, what's the difference between your ski mountaineering gear and the alpine gear that most people would be familiar with? Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about alpine gear, you're talking about resort skiing and you're riding up the mountain in a lift and your skis are attached to your feet at all times. Um, with ski mountaineering gear, you're actually hiking up the mountain. The skis are still on your feet, but your, your toes are connected. The, the front of your boot is connected to the binding on your ski, but your heel is able to move up and down. So you're able to walk uphill with your skis on and you have, uh, what they call skins on the bottom of your skis that grip the snow. When you go up the mountain, it doesn't let you slide backwards. And then when you get to the top of the mountain, you can adjust your binding so that your heel will lock into place. And then when you're skiing downhill, it's just like skiing in the resort. It feels just like that. Nice. Very, very cool. So do you, different people do different things. Do you prefer a lighter weight ski mountaineering ski or do you use more of an alpine ski that might be higher performance and just put up with the weight? Yeah, I have. Ch- I guess the last year I've I've changed a lot. My friends at Dinafit will probably hate me for saying it, but when I was at Dinafit, you know, they're all about lightweight everything, right. and so that's why that's what I did. I uh, never really knew anything different, and I have recently upgraded my skis to a little bit heavier boards. Um, still not like alpine you know, three pound skis, but I've, I've gotten a little bit heavier ski and I've noticed that my skiing ability has increased significantly because of it. So I love lightweight boots. I use the TLT six or TLT seven from DinaFit and then DinaFit bindings are incredible. They're lightweight, but super durable and um, dependable. But I upgraded my ski package. got to admit. So a little heavier ski made it a little easier to get down the mountain. Yeah. Yep. They're not as chattery. You can, you know, on ski mountaineering, you're, you end up, hopefully you're skiing powder all the time, but the reality is that's few and far between. So you often go through icy, crusty, nasty, breakable cross snow and, and having a little bit bigger ski, heavier ski, um, more rigid ski, actually, it really helps me with my performance. I know that if, and, but I'm, you know, I would say on the newer scale when it comes to skiers, that there's a lot of guys that, that they can ski just as well in the lightweight setup because they've got better technique. Mm, yeah. I could see that. I, I would be one of these guys that would need all the help he could get. You know, yeah, but it's funny though because going uphill, you know, it's really nice if you can shave off a couple pounds from your skis or in your boots, or your bindings. I do have a couple friends that I go backcountry skiing with, and they're using really heavy setups, heavy boots, heavy skis, heavy bindings, and I mean they're twenty minutes behind me mm. and same fitness level. So um, it, you got to pick and choose, I guess, where you're willing to save weight and where you want to get more to each their own. But I would say if you're looking to get more laps and, you know, it it can be the difference between making a summit sometimes. If you're 20 minutes late, your weather window can close. Yeah, no doubt. So 
kind of depends on the peak. I do still have a real lightweight setup that if I'm going to do something fast and light, big mountain, um, and get up and get down and I'm not trying to be a hero skiing. It's more of slow safety skiing Then the lightweight setup is great because you can move really fast. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of time when people do a, a mountain, they start by hiking and carrying the skis. You don't necessarily start on snow, right? There's springtime skiing yep. and, and so you, you're going to have to carry the heavier skis on your back. Man, that gear can get really heavy. Yes, it can. That can get crazy heavy. So I guess everyone has to determine what it is that they want to do and pick the gear that works. And that's not like every other adventure sport. There are just so many different ways to do it. And that's the fun, getting it all dialed in for, for right. what you love to do, you know? Right. And listening, this is a great podcast because people can hear some different options or going into your local retailer, um, sports retailer, and having them explain it to you showing you the differences. And a lot of those places will also rent gear. So you can try a couple different ski setups, for example, and see what feels best for you. Planning a new product or your next big trip? Running out of space for those ideas? U.S. Markerboard offers whiteboards and glassboards of every size, color, and surface material to keep you planning. From floor-to-ceiling boards to projectable glassboards for that perfect presentation, custom work is their specialty. U.S. Markerboard is the go-to for planning your team collaboration space. Think your needs are too complex? U.S. Markerboard welcomes the adventure of fulfilling your order. Use promo code ADVENTURE to get 12% off at usmarkerboard.com. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bissell Bark Bath. Bathing your dog is messy and it trashes your house. Groomers are expensive and in the wintertime especially, you can't clean a dog outside, it's just too cold. Well, the Bissell Bark Bath has solved all these problems. You have a spray nozzle that sprays a solution under the fur on the skin, and then you have a suction that lifts that dirty, wet solution out of your dog's fur. You can clean your dog anywhere in the house without making a mess. It only uses 48 ounces of water. It's a great, convenient way to give your dog a nice cleaning indoors. For more information or to buy your bark bath, go to bissell.com forward slash adventure sports. That is B-I-S-S-E-L-L dot com slash adventure sports. Use adventure sports for the coupon code and they will send you two free no rinse shampoo bottles as well. Well, on this Mira Peak trip, there had to be days that didn't go as planned or where you had more adventure than you expected. Do you have a story about that? Well, yeah, I do. So, um, typically, so Nepal has summer monsoons. So usually May through August, give or take, um, is the monsoon season. So they're going to get a lot of rain and the high peaks are getting snow. But, um, like I said, that's above like 15,000 feet. So, we tried to plan it that we were going to be there at the end of August, beginning of September. We'll miss the monsoon. And, you know, from once the monsoon's over, it's so beautiful up in the high Himalayan peaks. Like October is usually the peak time for trekking because the sky is blue and beautiful and there's no rain in sight. Um, so we tried to time it right after the monsoon and before the big tourist rush and trying to get some fresh snow. But we missed it, um, or it hadn't come yet, I should say. So the monsoons were still going on. And so when I said it was 18 days that we were on the mountain or climbing this thing, it was, I want to say, 16 days of rain oh. and clouds. And, <laughs> I mean, it's like 
I literally feel like I was growing mold in every place in my body. So just <laughs> wet and soggy. And, you know, the, the lower elevations from like 11,000 feet up to 15,000 feet, it's, it can be pretty dense underbrush um, rhododendron forests. And when it's wet like that, they're full of leeches. Nice. So they're just hanging off these branches and there's no way to avoid them. They're going to get on you and they're going to attach to you. See, the first couple of days, you're like trying to avoid rubbing up against any plants, but then you realize it's impossible to do that. And so it just, you get used to every night, you're like, do a leech check on each other and pull them off. It doesn't hurt. Um, and it just like bleeds for a little bit. Uh, but that wasn't very fun. Uh, but it just kind of <laughs> suck it up. Um, but I would say the more like the super hard, dangerous part of it was because it was still raining so much we had a ton of river crossings as we were traversing through the mountains. And, you know, in the fall, the, those rivers are easily crossable, just jump over them. But when we were there, there were some that were just raging. They were 30 feet across, like class five and above white water. Ooh. And we've got to get, we had our team of um, 14 climbers. And then we had um, about 20 porters that were helping carry our gear and, and base camp equipment up. So we had to, every time we came to one of these things, we had to set up a pretty elaborate safety system to get everybody across these things without falling in. And there was one on the way back. We'd already summited. Um, it was one of the last hiking days we had. So typically what we would do is one of us would um, strip down to our boxers and we would tie a rope around our waist and we would jump in upstream and there'd be somebody holding on to the rope on the other on on the bank. So in case you lost it, they could pull you back. But some person jumps in and this water is freezing cold. It's like glacier melt, super cold water. And so you just swim as fast as you can to get across to the other side. And then you tie the rope to another tree across the other side of it. And then everybody else, usually the water's not that deep. You know, it's like waist deep would be the deepest one. And so you can just take off your boots and hold the rope to kind of keep you upright and then just walk across slowly using hiking poles and the rope as a support. Um, so that's what we would do for most of these. And most of them went fine. And then on the last day they were hiking out and one of the porters was carrying the cook system, which is like the heavier, you know, um, when he, like big tanks of gas and, um, cook stove and, and he slipped and lost the rope and started bobbing down the river Oh no! and like 200 yards down the river, there's literally a 50 foot waterfall. And he's got this like heavy cook system attached to his back. Oh. And so there was three of us that had already crossed the river and we had the best chance to get down to him. And so we dropped our packs. I feel like in like half a second, like our packs were off. We were running down the river. There was this small eddy before the falls, jumped in. We created a human chain. I was the last guy out in the river and the porter comes floating down to me grabs my arm and then we all pull him back in um we couldn't pull him back in there was like too much weight and so we we're like screaming like drop your pack yelling at him to drop the the cook system and he did he was able to get out from it dropped it we were able to pull him in and then we just watched the cook system go over a 50 foot waterfall oh, oh man that is quite yeah. the story wow. yeah it was scary like i feel like i was on an adrenaline rush for three days after that. Oh, scary. You know, hindsight stuff. though, it's like we could have been better about having somebody a little bit down from the cross point with the throw rope. And just in case somebody did that, 
Well, and, you know, a carabiner with a leash hooked onto your belt, (laughs) that could go a long way, too. Yep. When you're using the the rope, you know. But that said, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, this makes sense. We've done it this way. Let's just do this. And Yeah. Wow. So was he he just crazy happy to get out of that water? Yeah. I mean, they're pretty stoic people overall, so... I mean, it wasn't maybe as much as a Westerner might have been screaming for joy. I think he was just scared for a while. And then later he just kept coming up and saying, thank you. Wow. Well, that's amazing. And if you guys had not acted as quickly as you did, then he would have gone over the waterfall. Yeah, probably. Yikes. Wow, that is crazy. Well, you know, you can't take a major trip like this. You've already told us two things that were very memorable and but you can't take a trip like this without it changing who you are just a little bit. Yeah. Can you uh, share with us, how did this trip change you? Hmm. You know, it was a real spiritual trip for me. I, it got, it really deepened my meditation practice. Um, being in, in the mount, those mountains for whatever reason, they're just, they're just awe inspiring. You know, I don't care what, what your faith is, it's going to stir you. And for me, being able to do meditation practice in such high places really, I feel like, cemented how important it was in my life. And, you know, I made some promises to myself that I was going to keep this attitude going and, you know, keep meditating every day. And, and I have since that trip. It, that was a, a big turning point to committing myself to doing a little bit of mind training practice every day. What has that done for you? You know, I would say before I was meditating a lot, when emotions would come like anger or jealousy, it would just like take me over. Somebody cuts you off on the road and you go from zero to 60. Like there's not even a gap between what just happened and the emotion coming. It's literally just instantaneous. And for me with meditation, the longer I do it, the more of a gap I recognize that like the, the emotion will arise, anger, say jealousy, whatever. But there's a gap between like, huh, does this make sense? And oftentimes, which I'm not perfect and it still happens for sure, but a a lot of times I can kind of at least mitigate the response and maybe not react as angrily. And that really can just make a difference being more calm, not saying things you don't mean. Um, It creates a so much more of a peaceful world around you and benefits other people because you're a much more aware person. You know, just yesterday I was on an interstate, Jim, and I, I looked up and they had one of the the signs that said 60 traffic deaths this year. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man. You know, here we are. It's a, at this point, it's, it's toward the end of February. So, you know, two months into the year, we've had 60 people in Colorado already go. And the reason I bring that up is because I was sitting there kind of laughing, traffic jams, you know, dangerous traffic, dangerous situations. And humans, as a survival instinct, we compete for resources. Yeah. That's what we do. It's a survival instinct. It's built into our DNA, right? And so you're trying to get to work on time. You're trying to find a gap in the road so that you can get where you need to be. And you're having to compete with other vehicles for that gap in the road. And then people do things that, you know, are a little less than wise, that make us frustrated. And, but it's just natural human response for the, the adrenaline to hit and the anger to hit and to want to, to somehow fight your way out of the situation. You know what I mean? Yep. But that's why yep. we have 60 deaths 
You know, that's part of it. It's it, there are other causes as well. Yeah. But what you're talking about is actually getting mastery over those base instincts so that you have a moment to to reconsider before you act. Yeah, Kurt. I mean, I would I guess uh, argue with you a little bit. I'm not sure if it's a base human thing. I don't know if it's a base human thing or if it's just that we've trained ourselves that way so much. Yeah. That it becomes a habitual pattern that you don't even rec- it, it it's normal in society to get upset about road rage or to find it. And so I think that I look at meditation as more of it's not necessarily going against my nature. It's actually getting back to your own your true nature, which mm. inherently I don't think that any of us are inherently angry or inherently jealous. We're we've just kind of we've allowed ourselves to do it so many times in a certain way that it it becomes the normal. Sure. And it, you that's why having a daily practice then can start to retrain. So here's another example of how going on a trip, having a life experience, altered your future life, right? Yep, yep. It, I no keep, question. I keep saying this stuff over and over again. People that are not doing these sorts of things, that are not going out and learning about themselves and challenging themselves and having these amazing life experiences, you know, they're missing out on some real opportunities. It's, yeah. it's what it's about. You know, it's why we have a podcast. So, and you know, I've had to spend a lot of time in traffic and what it's turned into me is I just kind of meditate on a podcast. (laughs) Forget about the traffic, forget about how fast I'm going or not. Just choose, choose a safe place and learn something, you know? Yeah. Perfect. Anyway, wild. Well, good for you, man. That's really cool. That's really cool. So why did you do it? I mean, you already told us, okay, it was a company trip. You had an opportunity, so you went. But there was a point in your life when you hadn't done any of these adventures, and you had to make the decision. You know, what was your motivation to become an adventurous person? You know, I find that all the best relationships I have in my life are with people that I have done some adventure with or been outside with. And that's been ever since I was a Boy Scout. I feel like I'm still in touch with some of the guys from my Boy Scout troop. And I'm, I'm not in touch with hardly anybody else from high school, but still with those guys I am. And then in college, when I moved from Cleveland to Boulder, immediately, I don't know why, I just, I've always been drawn to the outside, I guess, as part of it. But then it quickly gets cemented when you have just incredible experiences with people outside and your friendships deepen so much more than just going to another bar and playing pool. Mm. So, you know, it, it just again, it like habituates yourself to a new way of life when you do these experiences and it makes you feel a certain way and so great. And then you just want to keep doing them. It's, I guess, addictive in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. I I have friends that I used to do a lot of climbing with, Jim, that I haven't seen really in years. But when I think of them, I still feel close. I still feel like we shared something really special together. And Start thinking back over the memories, you know, the time there was that rock slide or that rappel that didn't quite go the way we expected or, you know, the, the time I had to reach down and grab someone or they had to reach down and grab me. And, and you know, the, those memories, they, they stand out. They're not like every day. They're like, no. no, special day, you know? Totally. Yeah, it's funny. Like, do you really remember what you did three weeks ago last, you know, three, three Tuesdays ago? No. Like, no, I don't really remember. <laughs> But I remember those 18 days I was on Mira Peak like it was yesterday. If someone else wants to do a trip like the one to DePaul where you did Mira Peak, where do they start? I mean, how does someone even get started toward a goal like that? 
Uh, I think it really depends for people on their level of comfortability with international travel and mountaineering in general. So Mira Peak, for example, it isn't a super technical mountain. If you're comfortable climbing Rainier, you could climb Mount Mira or Mira Peak. Um, but for people that are just trying to get into it, I, I always recommend going with locals that know the terrain. And there's some great guide services that that do trips up Mira Peak. And especially in a country like Nepal, the logistics can be complicated trying to find food and fuel. And so it's really not that expensive to hire some guides and porters. And, um, you know, porters with this type of a trip are pretty are really critical because you're hiking I think it was uh, about 40 miles one way, so 80 miles round trip. So it, it's really, and you're out there for 18 days. So it's it's almost unfeasible for one person to carry all of your gear for the whole trip. So you need some support. Um, so I would do that. And then, you know, there I've really been getting involved in, there's a lot of online communities for mountain training. So people that want to learn how to get physically fit for it, um, they can go, there's some great online resources for people um, to get stronger and be ready for a mountain like that. Well, it sounds fun. I think there, there are probably some beginning steps too, for people. I think, you know, the, the, the people that have never, ever done anything like this, just getting out the door and starting to get fit, you know? Sure. Yeah. I guess I skipped a couple steps. <laughs> well, depends, no, depends on where they are. Well, it's hard to, I think, Take those first few steps when you've never, ever done anything like that. But if you're one of the listeners who's sitting there saying, man, this sounds great, but it's just never been a part of my life. Yeah. Then, you know, that really wasn't my experience, Jim. Maybe you're the same. I always did adventures. But we've had a lot of guests on who started adventuring later in life. And uh, it's something about setting a goal and starting to move toward it. It's so rewarding and the feedback is so positive that I think that there's... There's a lot, a lot that we can improve about life by doing that sort of thing. So I, just to, out of curiosity, what gets you out of bed every morning? I mean, you're a successful guy. You've done a lot of stuff that takes long-term planning and, and working toward a goal. What motivates you to get up every day and get at it? Man, that's, that's a very big question, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it would be easy. Um, I guess I kind of have to answer it in multi-parts. I mean, I, I am psyched right now with my company. I've never had a company on my own before. Um, right now, I'm definitely putting a lot of time and energy into making Kusa Tea really successful. And it I've never enjoyed going to work more than I have right now. So that gets me up. I'm like super excited every day to get back to work and, and make it happen. Um, I would say, though, also that I love having, from a physical side, I love having something to train for. So this whole winter I did a lot of ice climbing and so I would train three times a week because I wanted to be ready on the weekend to do, I have, I had a bunch of projects that I'd never climbed before. It was a rare year for Colorado because we didn't get much snow early on and it's not good for skiing, but it's great for ice climbing because a lot of the really cool ice climbs are also in avalanche terrain. So when we get a lot of snow, you can't climb them safely. So right. this year I was able to get to a lot of places that normally wouldn't have been safe to go. So that got me up from a physical standpoint, like training for ice climbing was awesome. And now we're starting to get snow, which is cool. And and the next trip I have planned is um, end of October, beginning of November, going down to Orizaba, um, which is the tallest volcano in Mexico. It's like 18,000 feet. And we want to go and ski that. So now I'm starting to shift my mentality and start training for that. 
I think what you just said makes so much sense. You set the big goal, and then that helps you with the daily goals, right? Yeah. Because you yeah. know why you're doing it. It's not just a matter of, well, I got to do this to be healthy. That doesn't seem to be enough for us, right? <laughs> no, not for me anyway. Yeah, I'm with you. If I If I am out mountain biking regularly, then I'm much more likely to try to do healthy things so I can mountain bike better, right? Yeah. If I'm out climbing 14ers, it's the same thing. It's like, man, I'm going to go for a run because that's going to make that next 14er that much easier. And for me, that's the way I tick. I don't know about other people, but that's one of the advantages, I think, to doing this stuff. So just kind of curiosity, what adventure sport would you like to try that you've never done before? Hmm. Uh, I've always wanted to paraglide. Flying would be just incredible. Yeah, yeah, that would be an amazing one. We have not done a show on paragliding in a long time, so we're going to have to pull one in. I think that that it's timely. I'm glad you brought that one up. You should talk to Matt Siegel. He just founded Alpine Start, which is another instant coffee company, and they've got a great product, but he's uh, he's also world-renowned rock climber, but he got into paragliding. He's been doing a ton of it. Right on. Well, we'll get him on the show. That'd be cool. How do you decide on your next adventure? You know, it's funny. The last few, it's like, once I've done one adventure, while I'm doing that adventure with my partners, we start talking about, all right, what's next? Mm. Like okay. when we were, we had just finished skiing Rainier and these are like with two of my friends that one lives in Detroit, one lives in Seattle. So I don't get to see them all that often. And I think for us, even we recognized it, like you got to have a goal or we might not see each other for years. So once we finished, we summited Rainier and we skied back down to base camp, we were sitting around, had a little little uh little sip of whiskey and kind of talking about like all right what's the next big one and a couple both two out of three of us said orizaba just sounds awesome and so let's do it while hiking along the appalachian trail fellow adventurer and podcast listener scott newman faced an age-old problem that we're all familiar with foggy eyewear so he did something about it he solved that problem with sven can anti-fog solution Biodegradable, odorless, and 100% guaranteed, Sven Can See is the solution for all four seasons across all lens types. Go to SvenCanSee.com today and enter promo code ADVENTURE to get two bottles for the price of one. That's S-V-E-N-CanSee.com. It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events.
Well, hey, I want to talk about Kusa tea a little bit. Um, first of all, let everybody know what it is. I want to tell people because I've had it. I'm just going to tell them what I what I have found about it. Yeah, great, better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kusa tea not long ago made it into the the grocery stores in Colorado, and I was so excited to see it. I'd had it before because you had sent me some, but I bought some there because it's so good. So here's the thing. It's instant tea, like you said, but it's not like instant tea. So you shouldn't even call it instant tea. You got to need, you need a new word for it, Jim, because instant tea is like fake tea with a bunch of weird ingredients, right? Right. But this stuff is true tea that's been dehydrated down to the powder that instantly becomes true tea again. And it's just delicious and super, super convenient. No tea bags. You just open the pouch, pour it in, boom, three seconds later, I just wanted to say you've done a bang-up job with this. Uh, I've never heard of any other tea on the planet like this, and I think you found a niche that really, really helps. It helps for backpacking. It helps for adventure sports. It helps for travel. Anytime you want to have something that you can take with you that's convenient, then your tea is it. Yeah. So there's, Thank you. that's my testimonial. Well, couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I when I started the company, I was actually thinking, you know, I, I don't want to be um, going against loose leaf tea or bag tea, you know, this is instant tea. It's for when it just want it convenient, but it, the product, the way that the technology is working, um, like you said, it, it makes it taste as good, if not better than a fresh brewed cup of tea. And I was very excited. So just two weeks ago, we won two awards from the global tea championship, which is a international tea championship. And we compete against all types of tea. So we're not competing against other instant teas. This is against everything. Wow. And we won two silver medals. Awesome. So our mango green and our English breakfast won silver medal. Uh, so we were talking about, you know, tea sommeliers. These are, these are like a wine sommelier, but they're specially trained in how to taste and rank tea. And so our tea was so good that, you know, we beat out thousands of other bagged and loose leaf teas for its taste. So now it's like, you know, from a marketing perspective – you know, this is not only just a convenient tea, but it also, it's extremely um, tasty. And you can, like you said, you can make it in three seconds. And I, there's so many people that come up to me and say, you know, yeah, I, I got it once for a trip, but I'm just drinking it in the mornings all the time now because it's so much faster and easier. Or, or I used to take a, a bag tea and when I'm going into a meeting, I would put it in a cup of hot water, but then I'm sitting in an hour long meeting and I've got a wet, soggy tea bag. And I'm, it, my choices are either to pull it out and leave it on the table or throw it away into a trash can, it goes into a landfill and it's never going to biodegrade there or I just leave it over steep. And so in our process, you don't have any of that. It's the same consistent flavor. You can make it any temperature. So it's been a fun, fun ride so far. We're in about 500 retailers, like you mentioned, King Supers locally in Colorado, as well as a bunch of other natural food stores like Lucky's and Alfalfa's. We're in um, some other outdoor shops like Bristlecone Sports and Neptune Mountaineering and Bentgate. But then we're also launched into REI. Literally, the product is hitting shelves this week. So nice. I am super excited. That is kind of a, another testament to the product is that originally the buyer, the REI corporate buyer told us that she was going to put us in 24 stores and see how we do. But her staff kept coming up to her telling her how addicted they are to Kusa tea. And so she changed her mind and put us into every store across the whole country. So, <laughs> so all you need is for people to try it. Yeah, try it. <laughs> Awareness, help us grow and, you know, get the word out there. Because like you said, I wish there was another term other than instant tea. 
but it really is instant, but it's got a bad connotation to it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really tastes as good as a fresh brewed cup. So it, it just, I need people out there trying it and telling their friends and family that this tastes every bit as good as my tea bag, but it's so much more convenient. Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations on getting into REI too. That gets it to the nation now. But if yep. someone doesn't even live close to an REI, then how can they get your tea? Uh, my website, kusatea.com or Amazon. We're on Amazon Prime. So you can, anywhere in the country can have it in two days. Nice. So how do you think starting this company, Tea, is going to change your future when it comes to adventure sports? It encourages me, you know, with photo shoots, it's like, it's a perfect reason to be able to blend work and my fun. So we get to go on a trip and take a bunch of pictures and use it for our marketing collateral. So that's really fun. Um, I also believe I've always, one of the reasons I've wanted to start my own company is because I, there are some great companies out there like Patagonia and Arcteryx that encourage their employees to get outside. But most of my experiences, every company I work for, they really want you to work 60, 70 hours a week. Right. If, if they would, if they can do it, they'll overwork you. And I've, I've never liked that. I've always said, you know, they my employees will be better if they have a good work-life balance. So I think that starting a company, it, it, it now is beholden to me to practice what I preach and work hard, but work smart and get outside and enjoy what Colorado has to offer and the rest of the country and the world. Yeah. Just a little, uh, a little hack for people. If you have a product like this and you take a trip and you take the product and you take the pictures and you use that for marketing, then that just became a business trip. Tax deductible expense. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and why not incorporate what you love doing with uh, a business so that you can take advantage of those sorts of opportunities? You know, that's what yep. it's about. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, it's been really fun talking to you about your adventure in Nepal and about Kusa Tea and about all the things that you do. Um, do you have a kind of a funny or inspirational or or kind of crazy story that you'd like to close this out with? Oh my gosh, put me on the spot. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the funniest person out there, so I'll, I'll stay away from the joke side of things. But I would say inspirational wise, um, you know, starting Kusa Tea has been a big journey and there's a lot of ups and downs and there's a lot more to come. But it all started when I got laid off and it gave me the space in my life to to take a little bit of a risk and take a chance. And so I would just encourage listeners out there that if something negative happens in your life, there usually is a silver lining to it. And so using a little bit of, you know, I guess integrating meditation into this, it's like giving, giving experiences the space to open up. Um, it could save a lot of suffering for people instead of always looking at something as being the negative. Maybe it is opening up the door to something else more positive in your life. And I, I couldn't be happier with where I am right now. So in, in a lot of ways, I'm very thankful for being laid off. So, and I guess I'll leave it at that. Oh, I love it. That's very well said. Well, thanks man for taking the time to share that with us today. Thanks for having me, Kurt. It's awesome to be on and I'll let you know when we're done with Orizaba and give another trip report. Right on, and we still have to climb a mountain together. We're going to have to pull yeah, one do. off here. That'd yeah. be fantastic. Summertime. Come yeah, on. you bet. Well, hey, listeners, until the next show, not just get out there and have some fun, but think the bigger thoughts. Think about what would happen if, plan a bigger adventure, 
set a large goal that you can strive after and pick us some kusa tea along the way, right? <laughs> but get out there, have some fun. Thanks, Kurt. You bet. Okay, here's a last chance to get your entry in for the Aftershocks Bone Conduction Headphones. Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com, look on the right-hand side, down towards the bottom, and you'll find a Contact Us button. Click that and send us an email to get your entry in. All entries need to be in by midnight mountain time this Friday, March 9th. Good luck and thanks for listening. Why don't you do yourself and us a favor and become a member of our Facebook group. In there, you can hear about some awesome adventures, learn how to do new ones, and share what you've been up to. And while you're on the web, do us a favor and go over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and consider becoming a patron to help the show. You can also find a link to patron at the top of our website at adventuresportspodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening, guys.